Hello, this is Pastor Jimmy Harper. Thanks for listening to this Lee University broadcast. We're excited that you are joining us today for one of our many campus events. We hope that you are encouraged as you listen. Good morning. If y'all don't, please stand for the reading of the Word of God, please. I'll be reading from uh, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. But what about you? he asked. What do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by the Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come into your house of worship and listen to your word. We pray that you open our minds and open our hearts to what the rest of the service has for us. I pray that you move and let us move to where you want us to be, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity once again. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. A couple of years ago, I was spending some time in a small Romanian village called Tinka, where I met a young boy named Abel, who was part of the Roma, or better known to us, the gypsy population in that village. In this particular Roma community, it is large and extremely impoverished, and it's common for children to be abused and neglected. This was the case for Abel, unfortunately, as he grew up. He was abandoned by his mother as a small child and lived with his grandparents, who wholeheartedly believed that he was cursed. They treated Abel quite brutally, abusing him physically and emotionally, at times completely isolating him with no source of nourishment. Fortunately, Abel was eventually allowed to receive care from a local ministry called the Isaiah Center. This is where I met Abel and other highly at-risk children in the village. They were taken in by the Isaiah Center every day where they received food, baths, clean clothes, and shoes. They were educated, and most importantly, they were loved. One afternoon, I accompanied the Isaiah Center staff as they took a bell home for the evening. When we arrived at his house, the Isaiah Center director asked if anyone wanted to pray with his family before we left, and Abel was the first one to volunteer. As he began to pray, he was almost immediately overcome with tears. He wept and prayed for his family in the beautiful Romanian language, and though I couldn't understand his words, 
I knew that it was with deep, compassionate love that Abel prayed, and no one wanted that moment to end. Even his grandfather began to weep, and the Romanian speakers among us confirmed that Abel had prayed out of a wellspring of love. Abel cried out on behalf of those who treated him with contempt. His demonstration of love to his grandparents is something that I will never forget, and I hope that it profoundly impacted them as well. Whether we recognized it or not, Abel was following the example of Christ in that moment. Jesus' compassion for those who hated him led him to make the most profound demonstration of love and forgiveness that the world has ever seen. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners, and in the same moment, he brought justice by taking on the punishment for our sins. By his spirit, he now empowers us to follow his example in the way that Abel did. In my own life, I desire to follow Jesus' example as well as the example of Abel and others like him. It is through profound demonstrations of love, forgiveness, and justice that I believe Jesus can be made known to those who do not yet know him. I've come to recognize that if I actually believe this to be true, then there is no other rational way to live. I invite you to join me in looking for ways in your life to demonstrate Christ with examples of love and forgiveness even when it doesn't seem logical or rational. When we grow to love God with all of our heart, mind, and strength, then these actions, the actions of a bell, selfless actions of love, become the only option. I believe that this is who Jesus is, a loving, forgiving, and just Savior who calls us to know him and empowers us by his spirit to become like him. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming. My name is Wes Pfeiffer, and I find that my answer to Jesus' question, but who do you say that I am, is a little more complex than that of Peter. As Austin read, Peter's response in both Mark 8, 29, and Luke 9, 20 is shortened to the point. You are the Messiah. No matter how hard I try, I just cannot put into one sentence what Jesus is to me. If I had the time, I could stand at this podium all day long and tell you who I say Jesus is. But for now, I'll focus on the three most important moments in my life which have shaped my response to Jesus asking, but who do you say that I am? See, speaking in a manner like this is new to me. As a psychology major, I love research. I enjoy picking new topics, exploring the literature, combining research that I found to shape and mold my view of these topics. In fact, when I was asked to speak today, I responded with, great, I'll go do some research, and, and before I could even put the rest of the sentence together in my head, I was told that for today, I need to stray from my norm of taking in the literature and spinning that back out, but instead make this personal. And this is not easy for me, and a lot of time and meditation was required. As I would meditate and think back on the moments of the divine intervention of the Word of God, obviously the first thought that came to mind is that of my conversion. For me, I say that Jesus is a Savior. Now I know what you're thinking. The Word of God saves from hell, sure. But while I was at an FCA camp in the seventh grade, the Word of God saved me from being engulfed in the grief of knowing that I cannot handle the sin in my life, and this person named Jesus has overcome my sin, has looked beyond my sin, and he loves me anyway. One of my favorite prayers comes to mind. The following is a prayer by a man in Nigeria, which I ran across during a devotional. 
God in heaven, you have helped my life grow like a tree. But now something has happened. Satan, like a bird, has carried in one twig of his own choosing after another. Before I knew it, he had built a dwelling place and was living in it. Today, my father, I'm throwing out both the bird and the nest. For me, I say that Jesus is a savior. Secondly, in my time of meditation, I thought greatly of my communication with God. I thought about why I prayed and when I prayed. For me, I say that Jesus is the greatest leader. Throughout my years in high school and these past couple years at Lee, some weeks I found myself entrenched in busyness. Something deep within me tries so hard to be busy and frankly, I'm just not so sure why. It's like I have this backpack on and I fill it with five classes, two honor societies, a pretty weak attempt at doing a daily devotional, playing racquetball twice a week with the greatest professors on campus and trying hard to be the best son, brother, and roommate I can be. And after cramming all of that into this backpack, I fall flat on my back and I cannot even stand up and walk. Constantly, the word of God intervenes with open arms when I cry out for some relief, takes out some of the things in my backpack, helps me to stand up and guides me in the direction of his choosing. When Jesus does this, I find it difficult to do anything but follow along. For me, I say that Jesus is the greatest leader. Lastly, I would like to close with a story. This is the story of a moment that humbled me and at the same time impacted me in a way that I thought could truly never happen. I remember back when I lived in a small town called Rogersville, Tennessee, and a pastor there whom I loved dearly spoke these words one Sunday morning. No matter where we go, we should see a little Jesus in everyone. At the time, I thought this was one of those things that pastors throw into sentences because it sounds good theologically. I never believed it possible that I could literally, and yes, I mean literally, see Jesus in the eyes of another human being. But that changed, as I'm sure was God's intention. Around this time last year, I was doing service at the Cleveland Emergency Shelter with a small group of classmates. We were approached by a woman just minutes before we left, and this woman's name is Sarah Ann. If you've been to the Cleveland Emergency Shelter any in the past couple years, you've more, more than likely heard the testimony and possibly a little bit of street preaching from Sarah Ann. She looks to be in her mid to late 30s, is a mother of three boys, and is attempting them to raise and is attempting to raise them best she can in an environment with their father totally absent from all of their lives. Regardless of her situation, Sarah Ann has more faith in the Lord our God than anyone I have ever met. As she approached us, she began to spill her heart out to my peers and me. This woman, who I had spent only a couple hours with, gave her testimony right there in the parking lot, and before she closed in asking to pray with all of us, I looked into her eyes. In such a state of vulnerability, spilling her heart out to a few college students who I'm sure she didn't even know the names of, I looked into her eyes and I saw Jesus. I looked into the eyes of my classmates around me and I saw Jesus. For the first time, the words my old pastor said became real and, be and because of that moment, the way I look at others has forever been changed. For me, Jesus is the love, compassion, sincerity, and humility that can be found in the twinkle of every person's eye. God bless, thank you all so much. Good morning. A familiar Filipino proverb once said, a person who does not know how to look back from where he came from, he will never be able to reach his destination. And looking back, I've always run away in speaking in pulpit because as a missionary kid, I seriously think that a pulpit is a space of power, a privilege, a stature, and it's a sacred space. It's like entering the Holy of Holies. 
But the pulpit has finally caught me today, and here am I. I'm going to speak something about my own personal meandering of how I lose myself, and somehow someone has found me. Who am I? I often ask these questions to all my students in my introductory sociology class. I never knew it's going to come back to me with a vengeance that I hear. I'm going to reflect on this idea, who do you say I am? Well, you see, when you ask who Dr. Tagayuna is, people would have a different opinion about him. Uh, his master's status has a lot to do more about the color of his skin, maybe his social class, maybe his gender, and how he interacts with his students. Uh, I searched uh, my name at some point in this uh, just recently because uh, I really don't know what it means. So I began researching uh, about what really Arlie means. I was stunned what it means. At babies.com says that Arlie means Harris Meadows. The Urban Dictionary, which I really like, uh, describes uh, <laughs> Arlie as a perfection, the hottest of the hot. <laughs> In Hebrew, it means promise. Well, I'm not here to talk to you about what my name means, but what is it in the name? In the first line of the song, Who Am I?, the singer Casting Crown asks an existential question, and it goes like this. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth who would care to know my name would care to feel my hurt? This somehow reverberates an earlier Psalms that David wrote when he asked the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? To be politically correct, what is women that you are mindful of her? As far as I remember as a young lad in the countryside of the Philippines, savoring the bucolic life of a rice farming community, I too asked the very question, who am I? It may be alien to some of you for me to speak about like growing up in the rural uh, Philippines with cows, chickens, and water buffaloes, tending the rice fields and watching how the season can change a simple plant and, and grow into a sea of golden bushels. Don't get me wrong, I learned to be more perceptive and patient about others and myself by just observing the ebbs and flows of life in the farm. Like the many seasons in life, one's identity is molded from crisis and conflict. That was according to Eric Erickson. I grew up traveling with my parents across the Philippines during their missionary days. I traveled with them from civil war-torn areas to southern Mindanao, the site of Islamic insurgencies, to the muddy tracks of mountain regions of northern Luzon, another site of militarization during the martial law era, or to the oppressive banana plantation, the central provincial haciendas and ranchos and islands, and eventually to the islands of Hawaii. It was at this time that I met people from all walks of life. While my parents were busy doing God's work, I was busy exploring the people that I'd come to know. I remember as a young kid asking my parents, why are they poor? Why are they dirty? Why do they cry without tears? Why do they kill? Why do they yell? And the only answer I got from my parents was that because they're all sinners. Armed with the curiosity to understand the plight of people we intend to share the gospel of Christ, I began to see a big disconnect of the ideal Christianity and the real Christianity in practice that I see every day. I entered the University of the Philippines with high hopes that I become a medical doctor. I have a scholarship, a full, uh, full scholarship throughout the year uh, I was there, that I can be able to heal the sick and pursue my missionary dreams and go to Africa afterwards. 
As an ambitious young man, I sought to raise a flag that I will wave, a cause that I can champion, and to pursue a higher meaning of life. At the same time, my first semester of my first year in college, I decided to stay in the slums of Metro Manila to see firsthand what life is among the urban poor. Despite my sheltered upbringing, I defied my parents' wishes to seek a better settlement. <clears throat> but it's here that I began to question God about justice, about grace, about mercy. I saw five-year-old kids roaming around the city street without parents, begging for food in order to survive. I witnessed the atrocities of people of power in the street and in the government. I saw churches built in their mega megalithic splendor and yet never had allowed people of humble origins to step in their premises. I saw in the people their ability to structure among the shredded cardboards, tin roof, and stack with tires, and they call it their home. Then came the farmers. The farmers that I'm so familiar with, wherein I had the privilege of learning about how the dispossession of their land is synonymous to the dispossession of their soul. Then I lost my scholarship. <clears throat> the tower of my dreams suddenly collapsed. The road that I only knew to reach my piece of heaven somehow vanished. And also my dreams of reaching out to others also disappeared. I was so consumed about myself and myself alone. Goffman, the pioneer of dramaturg dramaturgical uh, theory and sociology, once said that identity is managed through the metaphor of stage, that in our front stage, our lives are meant to do an impression management, but it is the, at the backstage of our life that our, re, our real identity lies. It is here that I have lost my foundation, and I ask God why. <clears throat> my solicitation came back with no answer until I wrestled with God. It was the most difficult and depressing moment that I have to endure, but I learned that God reveals to you what you need to know when you need to know it. But in the meantime, I learned to be faithful, work, working out my salvation, always confident that he who began a good work in me is faithful to complete it. I was never been mentored by the giants of faith, nor through cutting-edge theology, but by the people who serve and whose heart is faithful, who praise diligently and show the example of what Christ is in their lives. My greatest teachers are the ordinary people I meet every day, the students I have taught, and the colleagues I have met, whose joy and laughter somehow gave me a glimpse of the face of God. But it's, it is in this searching God's, of God's will and letting it all go that I learned the biggest lessons in my life, which is trust and humility. My journey of faith has brought me farther and farther after realizing that my identity has nothing to do about my accomplishment, by my schooling, or the places I have traveled. From Southeast Asia to Southeast Tennessee, I am constantly reminded that a new tower is being built, not by me, but by, by, by God, who is my builder. I may be blind about tomorrow, but I'm assured that I can trust his heart. An old song once said, it's not because of who I am, it's not because of, it's because of what you've done, not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. It is my prayer, always, that I'll be a vessel, willing to love mercy, to seek justice, to walk humbly, because when he speaks, he leads, and when he leads, I will follow. That's who I am.
stand and join me in the responsive reading located on the back of your program? The Mind of Christ, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection or mercy, fulfill my joy by being like. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth. seated. A communion is the highest expression of worship. It is in communion that we identify with Christ in his death, in his burial, his resurrection, of course in his sufferings. It is the 10th day of October. A high priest, or priest rather, stands in the courtyard outside of the tabernacle. He lifts a sacrificial dagger and pierces it into the heart of an animal. As the blood gushes out, other priests come by and collect it in a basin. Then they take it into the holy place. And the high priest takes that blood and goes into the holy of holies. And there he sprinkles it on the lid of that box-like structure called the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. The awaiting crowd of worshipers stand outside and look and they see a billow of smoke rising from the Holy of Holies and ascending heavenward. And then the entire tabernacle is filled with a smoke-like presence of God called the Shekinah glory. A shout rises from the onlookers. This is the day of atonement. In this day of atonement and in this act of offering of blood, there are many symbols connected to the feast of the Passover and of the Lord's Supper, the communion. When Moses appeared before Israel on the night before they left Egypt to enter into the promised land, he instructed the people to kill a lamb, 
and to sprinkle its blood on the lintels and doorposts of their homes. So that when the deaf angel came by, he would pass over them. Then they would sit in their homes and eat the unleavened bread with bitter herbs. This meal was called the Passover. It was the covenant meal of the Old Testament, and it served as a seal of that covenant made between God and Israel. However, there were restrictions. It gave access to God through their high priests. And as far as forgiveness was concerned, it just covered their sins for that year. It gave them the right to purification through sacrifices that were performed by the priests on their behalf. Purification was possible and was achieved outside the Holy of Holies at any time. But reconciliation to God only took place on the Day of Atonement, that 10th day of October, as we call it. And this only took place in the Holy of Holies. These major restrictions short-circuited the free and full fellowship of a holy God with his chosen servants. Though these acts in themselves were acceptable once performed accurately, they were not adequate and only foreshadowed the finished work of Jesus to be done on the cross of Calvary. But when Jesus came, God made a new covenant with humanity. Jesus is the mediator of that covenant. His crucifixion was the sacrifice of the covenant. His blood was the purging or purifying element of that covenant. And the Lord's Supper is the covenant meal of that covenant. This covenant meal comprises two basic elements, unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. The fruit of the vine is representative of Jesus' blood. In the feast of the Passover and in the sin offering, blood was the main element. The main element associated with the bringing about and maintaining of a covenant seal. The Bible says in Hebrews in chapter 9 and verse number 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or removal of sins. Hence, Jesus' blood had to be shed in the sacrifice of himself for the sin of lost humanity. You see, the life of the flesh, the Bible tells us, is in the blood. The killing of the animals, the letting of the blood, were decisive factors in sacrifice. Sacrifice is the surrender of life. The surrender of life is what is essential for the forgiveness of sins. The Old Testament acts only typed or symbolized or foreshadowed the forgiveness of sins. But under the new covenant, you see, we have the privilege of being forgiven. We see in the death of Christ and in the letting of his blood, there is an ultimate significance and fulfillment of the ideas and of these symbols of forgiveness as seen in the old. By his blood, Christ ransomed and freed the church, this new creation people of God. Christ's sacrificial blood justifies all who appropriate his death to their lives. His blood cleanses all members of his body. His blood avails the believer of the opportunity to stand before God with a clear conscience. We can pray with our faces lifted up to God. We can go any time to him because of the blood of Jesus. There was blood in the old covenant, but it was not good enough. 
it was not adequate. The blood of Jesus makes purification and reconciliation available for every sin at once to every believer upon salvation. The blood of Jesus is enough. It is a once and for all purifier. In the blood of Jesus lies the power of sanctification. From the blood flows transforming and renewing power. We are made new. Everyone in Christ is a new creation. All things are passed away. All things are become new. Christ's blood makes life in God's holy presence possible. When God looks at us, he sees the blood of Jesus on our lives. In the Old Testament, the high priest sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the people. So too, our high priest has sprinkled his sacrificial blood upon us, and he instructs us in the communion to remember his sacrificial death till he comes. When we drink this cup today, when we eat of this bread today, we are in fact saying, Christ died for me. This is very personal. The body and blood are given by God, not the priest. It is taken by faith, not the hand, and eaten by the spirit, not the mouth. Paul tells us the cup of blessing which we bless. It is not just that the priests bless it, but we all together bless it. We participate in this, the highest expression of worship. There is unity. There is oneness. There is singleness of heart. There is a corporate note of praise as we join in identification with Christ in his sufferings, in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. When we lift the cup to partake, we are maintaining a memorial of his death, reminding ourselves that there is no other sacrifice, that this sacrifice is for us. We're reminding ourselves that this sacrifice is adequate. We are we're reminding ourselves that this sacrifice is complete. When we lift the cup to partake today, we are proclaiming the return of Jesus Christ which will bring with it the fulfillment of our hope. Yes, the final step, the redemption of these bodies that get sick and tired and weary and don't look as we would like them to look. They will become redeemed. Upon salvation, our spirit was recreated. Yes, in our earth walk, our minds are being renewed. Yes, but at his coming, we will be changed. Our bodies will be changed into a glorious body like his own. The communion cup that we bless today is glorious for us. It really symbolizes a complete covenant between God and us, a covenant typed in the past, effective in the present, and speaking about the future. So, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. Shall we bow for prayer? Lord, we want to thank you today for the precious privilege of partaking of these emblems that signify the broken body of our Lord Jesus and his shed blood. Together we bless the cup. We pray, O oh Lord God, that as we would partake of it, that healing will flow into our bodies. We bless the bread. We pray that as we would eat of it, that you will guarantee us long life, even as your word said. And as we take these emblems into our bodies, 
So let them enter into our soul and into our spirit that we will live the lives that will please you. By faith, we accept the healing work of Christ. By faith, we accept the redemptive work of Christ. By faith, we accept the blessing of being sanctified one more time, purged, cleansed, and purified. Search our hearts now. Remind us, O oh Lord God, of where we've gone wrong and cleanse us. Prepare us to receive these emblems. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. By way of instruction, I would ask for the ushers to come forward. Take your positions. The disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. What a beautiful service. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you to everyone who participated uh, in music and the spoken words. We have answered the question for you, or answered the question that Jesus has posed. But the question still remains for you. Who do you say that Christ is? Once you've encountered him, you'll never be the same. What is your story? What is your answer to the question? Please bow your heads with me. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your mercy, your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful university. We thank you, Lord, for giving us the opportunity to worship you together in community. We thank you, Lord, uh, for all the wonderful works that you are doing through each one of us. Remind us, Lord, of the encounters that you've had with us so that when we cross paths with others, believers and non-believers, that we will feel compelled to share with them who you are. Now let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Thank you again for joining us today.